All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at parts of chapters 10 and 11 this morning. I had an interesting conversation with my daughter on the way home from school the other day. We, uh, we were, I picked her up from cheerleading and we were just talking about some general things and what was going on with school and some of her friends in her class. And then uh, just, just all of a sudden, she said something that really caught my attention. She said to me, I just want to be memorable. And that statement really caught me off guard, not only because it was really out of the blue, but because my daughter loves the Lord and she's pretty mature and well-adjusted. And, and uh, it, just, it just was not something I expected to hear out of her. But I can't say I was surprised to hear someone that age say that they really want to be remembered 20 years from now. It fits in with an article that was in the Washington Post this week which talked about how the goal of this generation, the goal of the teen generation and the younger generation, is to be famous at any cost. Let me quote what the columnist concluded. She said, this is the generation that's been born, fed, diapered, and directed on camera. While my generation's childhood memories come down to a shelf of photo albums or a cardboard box of faded Polaroids, Generation Y has been documented since birth with thousands upon thousands of digital images. And growing up in front of a camera has planted the seeds of some seriously scary consequences. What do you think kids want most in life today? Money? Marriage? Adventure? A cool job? Spiritual fulfillment? Nope. Quantitative analysis revealed that fame was the number one value selected as the most important value for participants' future goals, according to a UCLA study. Another study found that the top five values emphasized in TV shows popular with children were fame, achievement, popularity, image, and financial success. So while their parents were the me generation, she calls their children the look-at-me generation. I heard Rush Limbaugh talk about this uh, a couple days later. And I thought his comments had very interesting insight. He said, this generation goes on social websites and vomits everything about themselves they can. They want everybody to know everything about them. They want TV cameras recording everything they do. They want people to be aware of who they are and what they're doing. Fame equals substance to them. Fame equals success. Fame equals wealth. So they're giving up every aspect of their anonymity and privacy in this quest because they associate fame with love. This endless quest for fame ends up being a life of emptiness, but they're pursuing it with everything they've got because they think it'll give their life meaning. And as such, they ignore anything that might be actually substantive or meaningful in their life. You know, I've heard that this is given as the rationale for some of the mass shootings that took place in Connecticut and Colorado and Virginia and other places. That by doing something so dramatic that the person will be remembered, even if it's something awful and heinous and, 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 and just incredibly destructive, that somehow there's this psychological uh, thought that, that fame is great no matter what kind of fame it is. And that even after death, that somehow they'll, they'll have satisfaction that their name was known by history. I don't know what you think about that theory, but I think there's a lot to it. And what stood out to me about it is that 
the person doesn't want to be known for who they are or what they believe or or what kind of benefit they brought to society or or what kind of help they brought to other people. The person wants to just be known. They just want to be remembered. And that low standard leads to a cheapening of values because no longer is uh, the end goal character or no longer is the end goal a contribution to, to the world. That's shown by the fact that society cares more about sensationalism than it does about spirituality. It cares more about fame than it does about actually serving. And self-promotion is the vehicle for declaring yourself important. The more outlandish you are, the better. Because somehow in the barrage of information and the plethora of of sound and, and pictures that we have in this generation, somehow you've got to cut through that and you've got to get people to notice you. Now the problem is that nothing's special anymore. Nothing's sacred anymore. Nothing is unique anymore. Remember a column I read about 15 years ago, and the writer said, it used to be that if you went to the Bahamas, you got a T-shirt from the Bahamas that said, I was actually in the Bahamas. Now you can get a T-shirt that says you've been in the Bahamas if you're sitting in Schenectady. All you got to do is go online, and you get a shirt. I went to the Bahamas, but you were never there. Nothing special anymore. Nothing is unique. And I thought that concept of the pictures in the box was very fascinating. Back when, when I was about 12, my family and I uh, went on a trip, and we used a very special deal that Eastern Airlines ran back then. I may have told you the story before. For $300, you could travel anywhere in the United States or the Caribbean over 21 days. The only proviso was that you couldn't go through the same airport twice, which was very interesting. So because my sister was graduating from high school and, and really it was going to be our last family vacation together, we went all over the place. We went to California and we went to the Virgin Islands and we went to just about every major city in between. For 21 days, we just went crazy and visited everywhere we could. And as we went, this was in the 70s, we took about 18 rolls of 35 millimeter film. You remember that? The little rolls? 36 pictures each. And we were excited to see what we got when we came back because back then, I know this is hard to believe for some of you, there was no such thing as a digital screen on the back of the camera. You just had to hope for the best, right? It was like we were living in the dark ages. I took a picture and I hope I get to see that. So when we got back, we we took the pictures in and we waited for three days. I know that's hard to believe too, that you had to wait. And we got all the packets back, and inside were seven pictures. Apparently, the back of the camera had a little opening, and all the light had got in and ruined everything. Imagine how many pictures we would have taken if we had had a digital camera. Two years ago at family camp, we took 600 pictures. And that was just one week in Iowa. So imagine with a digital for 21 days traveling all over the country, how many pictures we would have taken. And in one sense, that's nice because you have a large record, right? But the disposable nature of pictures, in other words, even when you take a picture, you look at it like, yeah, I don't like that, delete. The disposable nature of each picture diminishes the memories in some ways because 
you rarely miss anything that happens. Little is left to the imagination. Little is left to the memory. You, you have everything there. Now, that's a long introduction, but it gets us to our text. All throughout the Bible, we're called to remember. David especially touches on the concept. He tells us to remember the Lord's goodness and faithfulness and sufficiency and help. We've done that this morning. He asks the Lord, remember your people. Show your loving kindness to us. And God calls us to remember what he's done. His covenants, his deliverance. Constantly he tells Israel, remember Egypt. He talks about his, his, uh, the need for, to remember that we need to trust him and to remember that we need to keep his commandments. But there's only one time in the Bible, there is one time in the Bible where the Lord says, remember me. Remember me. And that time is at the table where we just celebrate a communion. It's listed at the end of chapter 11. If you have your Bible open, we won't look at it. Just glance at it. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus says, as often as you drink the bread, excuse me, eat the bread and drink the cup, remember me. I believe that he chose that one moment, not only because we can relate to it with everyday life. I don't know about you, but I eat and drink every day. So we would remember this. As often as you eat or drink, remember me. As often as you take that in as part of your everyday life, remember me. He not only tells us because it's something we do every day, but he also tells us because it so perfectly symbolizes who he was and what he came to do. The broken bread is such a strong picture of his complete sacrifice that he endured for us. And the cup is such a powerful image of his blood, which cleanses us from sin and introduces the new covenant. But it's also a clear representation of what's so memorable about Jesus. And about the very clear example that he gave us to follow, especially as it applies to our passage here in 1 Corinthians. And we've talked about Corinthians a lot. We've talked about the situation in Corinth. We don't need a, a lot of background. Very simply, the problem among the believers in Corinth was that they loved themselves more than they loved the Lord. And that manifested itself in arrogance and in division and in jealousy and in misuse of their spiritual gifts and misuse of their spiritual liberty. And Paul was frustrated. He was disappointed. He was angry, I would even say, with them. And he writes three letters. We don't have one of them, but he writes three letters to, to express his frustration and to confront their pride and to say, you need to change and live like Christ. And besides chapter 13, which we know is about love and about uh, the importance of loving the Lord with all their hearts and loving each other as ourselves, beyond that, 1 Corinthians is probably best summed up, look at it, by chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul says very simply, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now that is such a simple but important spiritual principle. That whenever we need to be reminded of how to live, or we need to regain our spiritual footing, or we need to get our bearings straight on who we really are, we have to look back at Christ. He is our perfect example, 
He's the author and finisher of our faith. By him, we're saved, redeemed, purchased, cleansed, forgiven, and secured forever. And because we are, we're called to live like him. And when we live like him, that's when the Lord is the most pleased. Now, that clearly wasn't the case in Corinth. That clearly was not what's happening with the Corinthian church, where they're repeating the same mistakes that Israel made in the wilderness over and over again. So Paul writes to them, and he says, here's what needs to change. Look at chapter 10. Let's start in verse 1. For I do not want you to be aware, brethren, he's writing to believers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now, Paul is making the point, drawing their attention back to the Jews coming out of Egypt and walking through the wilderness of the Promised Land. He's saying everybody operated on the same playing field. Everybody had the same advantage of God's presence and God's help and God's salvation and God's provision. Everybody had that opportunity. They even drank from the same spiritual rock. Notice how many times, if we were doing our precept study, how many times he uses the word spiritual. He wants to get them out of the mindset of the material, which is what they were stuck in. Then he says, think about the spiritual aspect of this. They were so focused on it's hot and it's dry and we don't have water and where are we going to sleep? He says everything about that was spiritual. And they drank from the same spiritual rock, not only referring to the rock that the water came out of, where they physically drank water. He says they drank from a spiritual rock. And it's interesting because Christ is never mentioned in that passage. But he says the spiritual rock was the rock of salvation. It was Jesus Christ. Christ was there with them. And yet the tragedy of the passage is that very few of them please the Lord. It says in verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased. If there's ever a sentence that we don't want said about us, it's that. Imagine if God says, with Harbor Rock Tabernacle, with most of them, I'm not well pleased. Or with that family, when I look around, with, with most of the members of that family, I'm not well pleased. They are not living for me. Now, Paul doesn't explain what happened because he doesn't need to. It's described in the verses that follow. But it's painfully obvious that Israel became proud and ungrateful. And in their arrogant desire for lack of accountability, they became independent from the Lord and they became self-sufficient and they constantly rebelled about him. We've heard this before until eventually he disciplines them and takes them into captivity. Why? Look at verse 6. The bottom line was that they craved evil things. They couldn't get enough of them. They couldn't stop themselves. The hunger in their hearts was so strong to disobey the Lord. Now, we would hope that that's not true of anybody in the room this morning. But there are things that the Spirit of God wants to tell us. 
even if that's not true this morning, if you're sitting there going, I don't crave evil things. I love the Lord, serve the Lord. That's wonderful. But there's still things that the Spirit wants to tell us because we live in a non-spiritual culture. Let's not fool ourselves anymore that we're a Christian nation. We're not a Christian nation. We live in a non-spiritual culture. At best, our culture is indifferent about God. But increasingly, it's opposed to God. So we're in minority. So as we live in a non-spiritual culture, we have to come back to Jesus' words at the table. And his words at the table are, remember me. Now, why does he tell us that? Let's take apart chapter 10. Chapter 10 really has two parts to it. The first is a description of the actions that stand as a sharp contrast, this is in verses 1 all the way down to about verse 22. They, they stand as a sharp contrast to who Jesus was and what he did. The second part of the chapter, chapter 10, is a challenging reminder that just because we're free from sin and no longer under its control, that that doesn't give us a license to do whatever we want. Especially when we are around people who are going to be damaged in their maturity or weakened in their conviction because we're doing something that we have the liberty to do that will actually hurt them by them watching us doing it. So he talks about the contrast between actions and Jesus. And then he says, as believers, you're free from sin, but you have to be careful how you live. And to explain this, Paul then gives four specific examples in chapter 10. This is between verses 6 and 10 of, of what was so pervasive in Corinth and what will be the temptation for us. Because what Jesus did was exactly the opposite of everything the enemy wants us to do. Everything that the enemy lures us to do, everything that he entices us to do, and this is seen broadly in what the world values, everything that the enemy wants us to do is the opposite of what the Lord wants us to do. So if we want to truly be memorable in God's sight and be pleasing to him and be memorable to those who love Christ or need Christ, these are the things that we're supposed to imitate. Look at what Paul describes here. Start in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Let's take some notes this morning. The first action, the first thing that we're told not to do, and I don't want to present this as negative, but that's how it's written. The first action that we would take to, to love ourselves and be memorable is to worship idols. He's saying, do not fall into idolatry. Do not be idolaters. Why? Because the inclination of man is to worship idols. That was the second commandment given to the Israelites at Sinai. And it was the second commandment that they immediately broke. But the origins of this go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember the devil's appeal to Adam and Eve. You don't need God. God's not being honest with you. 
God's withholding information. He knows that if you eat of that certain fruit, you're going to be God's. So, so why would you listen to him? What you need to do is you need to disobey him and turn on his word and doubt his word because he's not been straight with you and he knows that you can be like him. That was the first idolatry in the Bible and worshiping idols has two components, not worshiping the Lord and selfishly making something else your God. And that includes ourselves. Idolatry is not just, oh, I bow before a stone idol. Idolatry is subtle and it's insidious. And it has two parts. I am not going to worship the Lord who alone is worthy of worship. And I am going to worship something else. Now, there's no object, no, uh, no uh, question that that's the objective of our culture today. The idol that mankind worships, and it's really never changed, is the idol of self. It's infiltrated every aspect of our culture. It's infiltrated the family and it's infiltrated the church. And once its roots get planted, it is incredibly hard to eradicate. That's why Paul says, going down to verse 14, flee from idolatry. In other words, get away quickly from the concept of worshiping yourself. But how do we do that? Jesus says, remember me. We're reminded in those two words of the one characteristic that he showed that is so powerful and yet is so incredibly hard to imagine. I don't know how God can love us. I don't know why he would love us. I don't know how he is willing when we have offended his holiness and purposely rebelled against him and stood against him how he is willing to still love us. That to me is the most incredible concept about God. But right behind it is how it was possible for Jesus to humble himself. Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself and he laid aside his rights and he emptied himself for us. Now, not only did that show an incredible amount of sacrifice, but it showed an incredible amount of, This hit me this week of continuous restraint. He was fully God in full flesh. I don't know how that works. That's just what it was. And as God in flesh, don't you think there were times where his righteousness said, you Pharisees are driving me nuts. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth with a flick of my finger. You disciples are so faithless. I can't put up with it anymore. I am the holy God. I, I cannot put up with your, with your self-righteousness and your arrogance and your thinking about yourselves and your lack of faith and your lack of commitment and your distraction. I can't do it anymore. Don't you think just in our humanity thinking into it or, or looking at Judas saying, I am going to wear you out, boy. I know what you're about to do. He was fully holy, and yet it says that his mind was constantly on the cross. So instead of getting worked up and saying, I'm going to wipe you out, he said, I'm going to stay focused on the cross. I'm going to humble myself and lay aside my rights of what I have every right to do. And I'm going to keep heading to the cross so I can take away your sin. He took the step of selflessness in order to deliver us 
So what does Paul tell us? Chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of Christ. And even though that is uncomfortable and it flies in the face of our innate human nature, remember that as a believer, that human nature has been defeated and replaced by the nature of Christ himself. So 1 Peter 5, 6 says to us, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Let me ask you this morning, how do you need to humble yourself before the Lord? When you look at your life and you know what's going on, only you and God know what's going on in your head. You can hide it, you can play it, you can express it, you know a lot of things, but only you really know. So what has been proud and resisted in your life? What, what, is, what is standing as an idol in your life where you say, I still want to control that. I still want to have free reign of that. You can't tell me, Rhodes, what to do. Bible can't tell me what to do. This is my area. I'll give 97%, but that 3% is mine. That's not total abandonment to the Lord. That's not humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. See, humbling ourselves is an active choice of our will, and it's painful. But the end result of humbling ourselves before the Lord, God says, here's what I want to do. I want to exalt you. And you go, what? God says, if you will humble yourself before me, I will bless you and I will elevate you. It makes no sense. How and why he would do that is beyond our comprehension. And why he would want to accept us is past our understanding. Because all we want to do is serve ourselves. But when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he says, all you will want to do is praise and glorify me. So Jesus says to us through Paul, don't worship idols. Remember my humility. Then he says second in verse 8. One of the actions that you'll take to love yourselves and be memorable is this. Don't let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Our second great desire is to act immorally. Listen, this is basic Christianity this morning, but we need to hear this. Paul reminds them of what happened in Numbers 25. Numbers 25, the people are starting to get loose. The people are stopped listening to the commands of God. They're on the verge of the promised land, but their hearts aren't there. Their minds have wandered. And it says in Numbers 25 that they had started to be sexually immoral with the Moabites. That because they became sexually entwined and immoral with the Moabites, they started to worship their gods. So the Lord comes along and he says, I can't put up with this. And he allows a plague that kills over 20,000 people. Now that was a highly relevant topic for the Corinthians because their town was obsessed to sexual, uh, by sexual immorality. The town of Corinth was addicted to this. They had a temple to the goddess Venus. Venus was the goddess of lust. And in the temple to Venus, there were a thousand prostitutes that were actively serving and calling themselves priestesses. 
So this was not a mild situation. This was an incredibly dark, spiritually corrupt city. And that had started to impact the church because they hadn't stood against it. In their pride, they had opened up their hearts to what feeds our pride. So sexual immorality, anytime we're living for ourselves, sexual immorality is going to come calling and say, take part. So the church is exposed, the town is dark, there's spiritual corruption and sexual immorality all around them. And they hadn't aggressively and intentionally guarded against it. So Jesus comes and he says, here's my example. Look at the text. Do not act immorally. That's not just a soft word there. That means do not give your heart over to sexual impurity. How do we combat that? We combat that by remembering Jesus who is holy. Holy and pure and righteous. There is a complete absence of sin in the Lord. Jesus could not have fulfilled the law. He could not have taken our place on the cross if he wasn't spotless. But the fact that he is, listen now, he calls us, we said the word earlier, partakers in his holiness. Holiness is not just something that we'll attain when we get to heaven. Well, I can't wait to get to heaven where I'm perfect, but for now it's a struggle. No, it shouldn't be a struggle. He says, you are partakers of my holiness. I've changed your nature. I've changed your heart. I've renewed your mind. I've transferred you from darkness to light. I've taken away the old nature and filled you with my new nature, and I gave you my Holy Spirit. So you are called now, believer, to live Holy lives. Now that's an incredibly high standard. And yet he has given us everything that we need. Listen, pertaining to life and godliness. So Jesus says to us, be holy as I am holy. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. And he gives us all the capacity we have to be holy because if he didn't if he didn't give us all the capacity we have to be holy he would be mocking us he'd be saying hey be holy like i am but you have no chance of doing that that would be hypocritical of him he says i gave you my spirit put off sin and put on the clothing of righteousness be clothed with christ listen is that a stumbling block to you this morning are you wanting to be noticed? Are you wanting to be treated differently? Are you wanting to be seen as desirable and, and being wanted by others? Are you flirting with pornography? Are, are you allowing lust to creep into your heart? Are you coveting? Is there something there that is causing you to walk in immorality? Listen, that is going to lead you into sexual immorality if it hasn't already. So Jesus says, remember me. I'm the holy one. You're mine. My mercy has made you holy. So while I have declared you holy, and I know you're not holy yet, stop craving evil things and stop pursuing what is immoral and follow my example. Be holy like me. Third problem. Look at verse 9. The third action of loving ourselves is what Paul terms to try the Lord. Let us not try the Lord 
as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. The word there means to test thoroughly. The implication is that we push the Lord. We say, Lord, now fulfill what I want. How do we do this? Well, we misquote his promises. And we try to manipulate his character. And we take advantage of his love and mercy. What an offense that is to the Lord. Not only that we'd be callous and ungrateful, but also that we would signal such a reluctance to surrender to him and his will. Think about the hardest thing God's ever asked you to do. You know it was the Lord's leading. You know it was something that he allowed in your life. Maybe it was something that was great difficulty. Maybe it was a health crisis. Maybe it was a relationship failure. Maybe it was God moving you to a different part of the country or or putting in a different job. Whatever the case may be. Think about the hardest thing that God's ever asked you to do. He says, you must be willing to submit to my will. See, Israel constantly fought his commands. They constantly fought his leading. They rejected any boundaries. They didn't want morality. They didn't want the law. They didn't want Moses to lead them. They didn't want to trust the Lord. They didn't want to follow the cloud every day. They didn't want to wait to get to the promised land. They wanted it now, and they wanted it how they wanted it. Give us bread. Give us meat. Give us water. Quit telling us what to do. We'll build whatever we want to build. You don't rule us. God said, you're mistaken. You're sadly mistaken. I am the Lord and you will trust me. Stop trying me. Now, if that's where we are this morning, and it may not be that that strong, but, but maybe suddenly in our hearts this morning we're saying, I don't really want to follow what the Lord wants me to do right now. Believe me, I've had those times. They say, Lord, no, no, I would prefer not to do that. God says, I don't care what you want. This is what I want. This is what's best. We say, Lord, I really, I, I, give me something else. I'll do whatever. Just, just don't ask me to do that. Listen, if that's where we are this morning, we can expect his discipline. Because we're saying, Lord, I will live for you, but I will only live for you on my terms, which is an oxymoron. You can't live for the Lord on your terms. You live for the Lord to live for the Lord, or you live for yourself on your terms. The two do not mesh. Jesus says, remember me. Why? He says it at the height of submitting to the will of the Father. Think about this. He's sitting around with faithless, self-centered disciples who still don't know what's going on. And Jesus shows his complete willingness to live by the Father's will. How do we understand that? I cannot explain it to you. I don't know how the Father can be in heaven and the Son can be here and they're one God and they're, and they're in different places. I don't understand that. My mind can't grasp it and neither can yours. We won't have that kind of spiritual insight till we get to heaven. But don't get distracted by it. Just be amazed by the example of Jesus who said, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And that's exactly what Jesus accomplished. He says, my will, my meat, what I'm about is to do the will of the Father who sent me. 
I'm not going to listen to the devil as he tries to confuse me. I'm not going to listen to you disciples as you try to distract me. I'm not going to take my eyes off the cross, even though it's going to be hard. I am here to do the will of the Father who sent me. Now, if our hearts are in rebellion against the Lord this morning, and by that I mean that we're kind of stubbornly resisting the will of God, we have to remember Jesus who had the hardest assignment that anybody will ever have by 10 trillion and said, I am going to do the will of the Father. I'm going to do the will of the Father. I'm not going to try the Lord. This week, don't do anything that tries the Lord. Don't do anything that tests his patience. Don't do anything that causes him to say, what are you doing? Why Why are you not doing what I ask you to do? Look at the fourth problem. We need to pray. I'm out of time. In verse 10, the fourth action of loving ourselves is to grumble. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now that may seem like an odd one in the list. Until we remember how much Israel complained in the wilderness and how much that complaining infected their hearts and their faith. It's easy. It's easy to get into the habit of being dissatisfied. And when we allow that to be chronic, when we're never content with anything, when when we can always find fault in people and situations in life, that will quickly lead not only to grumbling about life, that will quickly lead to grumbling about the Lord. And it may not be obvious and it may not be outward and we may hide it well by blaming it on other things and justifying our discontentment and saying, well, you just don't know the situation. But this really is a sin issue. Now, that's a bold statement. So how do I know that's true? How do we know this is a sin issue? We'll look at the end of the verse. It says that when we grumble, we come under the influence of the destroyer and we eventually will be destroyed by it. Now, the only person referred to in the Bible as the destroyer is the devil. And the devil's desire is to separate us from the Lord by appealing to our pride and how the Lord isn't feeding our pride. When that happens, always remember that the devil is a miserable, self-absorbed, unfulfilled egomaniac who doesn't care about anybody but himself. We saw that in the Revelation study Tuesday, remember? That he eventually will turn on his allies in the end times and he'll destroy them because he's not about anybody but himself. So his temptation to us is to grumble as a reflection of the result of our pride. Now Jesus says one more time, remember me. Contrast what the enemy wants us to do with the one who paid the price for us. Philippians 2 says that and Jesus looked toward the cross and emptied himself and set aside his rights, that he did so with absolute joy, enduring the ridicule, despising the shame, dealing with the opposition and the persecution of those who hated him and the disloyalty of those who were closest to him. And then he went to the cross as our substitutionary sacrifice. But he didn't say, I can't believe I have to do this. He said, I am thankful that I get to do this. This is my greatest joy that I can sacrifice for you. Somebody say amen to that. Why would he do that? Imagine if Jesus had gone to the cross grumbling. I can't believe I'm going to do this. John, where are all my disciples? I can't believe Peter denied me three times and swore. Where is everybody? Where are the cl- Where are the crowds that said, Hosanna, Hosanna, just a week ago? Where are they? 
miserable people. I got to sacrifice for you. Why do I have to do this? Can you imagine such a picture? We take it so for granted what he did. Imagine if he had acted like us. For the joy that was set before him. Listen, if anybody had a right to grumble, it was Jesus. But instead, he had pure delight in submitting to the Father's will. I'm done. Maybe this is your weakness. Maybe that chronic dissatisfaction and that pushing the blame and responsibility on others is what's grabbing you this morning. And the Lord's saying, yield to me, yield to me. And when we don't want to do that, you know what? We look at this table and Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, which is given for you. You want to complain? Look at my table. You want to complain? Look at the cross. Look at what I have done for you. Now, be imitators of me. Follow my example and what an example it is. The awesome power of God that now we have within us. So he says, be imitators of me and I've given you everything you need to do that. May God help us to do it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this great and difficult calling that you've given us this morning to be imitators of you. Lord, that's uncomfortable for us because it goes against our human nature, but you've delivered us from that. So Lord, may we be humble before you, broken by what you've done and the great sacrifice that you've made. Joyful that this morning we're called your children. Lord, this morning we're called your children. We have inherited what you have promised. We are secure in heaven forever. There's nothing that can separate us from your love. Now, Lord, you call us to imitate you. Lord, help me this week to do that. Help those that love you this morning to do that. That our lives would be a shining example of the fact that we are one with you. Lord, when temptation comes and bride comes calling and we want to sacrifice our relationship with you to be memorable. We want fame and for people to notice us. Lord, destroy that thought and help us to realize that the greatest impact that we'll ever have is loving you and serving you so that others will come to know you. We thank you and praise you for what you're going to do. Lord, do a fresh work in our lives this week. Even as we walk out the door this morning, begin the work of refining and completion in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you do this and that you love us and care about us enough to do this for us. And Lord, throughout this week, may we remember Jesus every single moment of every single day. We love you when we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.